0: Irish Nation, Notre Dame takes down another ACC opponent, extends the streak even further against unranked opponents, and has officially secured a fifth straight
1: 10-win season. Uh, Brett, how was your weekend? Phenomenal. We uh, hosted a record-breaking Friendsgiving after the game last night, had 14 folks packed into our house that is very much not designed for a 14-person dinner party, but we, we, we had a blast with that. And my other big news, I got my COVID booster today, so really pumped for that, but starting to feel some, some of the effects here, so record-setting year for needles, but but glad to do my part and get that extra protection. A quick heads-up for our listeners, Mike and I will both be traveling for Thanksgiving, so next week's show, we'll, we'll be recording it a couple days late. Uh, as always, subscribe on Apple, follow us on Spotify, follow us wherever you get your podcast. so that way you'll know as, as soon as the latest episode drops, you'll get the alert. And then in the coming weeks, we'll give our listeners a heads-up on our plans for bull season when we'll be recording shows, and, and also kind of outline what we're planning to do for the ensuing off season.
0: Yeah, Brett, he got his booster a couple hours ago, so if mid-episode he sounds like he's about to, you know, faint or his energy level drops off, you'll know that it's, it's just kicking in then. So,
1: uh, <laughs> Mike, so you, we might be finishing the show.
0: <laughs> yeah, so just flagging that in advance. Um, another big rumor swirling around that we, we need to mention, um, it has to do with the, the coaching carousel. And it's gotten pretty hectic this year already. There have been a ton of Power 5 jobs opening up, uh, especially marquee ones at this point. I'm sure there will be more in the coming weeks. Um, but, uh, both Brian Kelly and Marcus Freeman have been mentioned as potential candidates. Kelly leaving seems very unlikely. You never know. It reminds me a little bit of Sabin a few years ago when, when they, uh, people were saying he was going to go to Texas. Um, you know, I think Kelly should, uh, he should start looking at real estate in, uh, in LA just to, just to troll the USC fans. Um, However, Marcus Freeman, that that does certainly seem more plausible. Uh, In next week's show, we're going to cover a segment on how former Kelly assistants have fared as head coaches. And then we're going to help provide some context on Marcus Freeman's options.
1: And then looking specifically to this show that we're about to get into, we'll dive into um, the the Georgia Tech game very briefly. The Stanford preview looks like another multi-score favorite opportunity for Notre Dame. And then we're going to do a deep dive on uh, listener mailed by questions that we've been collecting in the last few weeks but but haven't been able to get to all of them. So we're going to do a, a brief segment on, on each of the following. Uh, look at the offensive scheme from the first half to the second half. What did Notre Dame do differently to really get the offense in gear? Um, explain a little bit better what SP Plus is. And then uh, another question we got. Dream about a hypothetical rematch if Notre Dame and Cincinnati got to play again today versus when they played earlier in the season. Uh, what's new and improved, how that game might be different, and then re-examine the path to the college football playoff. We sort of dismissed Notre Dame's odds when, when we first covered this a few weeks ago, but the path is there. Notre Dame continues to climb the rankings, likely going to be number six, number seven this week, so get, getting closer to that top four. And then we'll wrap up the show with the return of Notre Dame obscurities uh, covering the marshmallow tradition. All right, that sounds great. Let's dive in. You got to have fun. You got to play for your problem. You're going to have 30 of them playing for the last time in Notre Dame Stadium. Notre Dame 55, Georgia Tech 0. Total domination in all phases of the game. The defense pitches a shutout while also getting two touchdowns. The offense marched up and down the field, and as my uncle and cousin-in-law, Stephen James, both Georgia Tech alumni, referred throughout this game, Georgia Tech's defense was Swiss cheese Giant holes, easy to cut through. I think that about sums up this game.
0: Definitely, we'll do a quick review of this game. I think games like this are easier to recap because it was it was a total annihilation. We were just running uh, full tilt in all aspects of the game, um, very consistently. Um, but so, like I said, the takeaways are pretty clear, and let's dive into the box score. So, garbage time. We don't talk about this a lot because uh, Notre Dame has played in a lot of close games. Advanced metrics, it's really important to note here, they throw out garbage time. So they don't look at plays and drives that occurred during blowouts. However, every source is a little bit different. For us, for the data set that we look at the most, we, re- we really like collegefootballdata.com. And the way that they define garbage time, it's uh, a thirty-point, point lead in the second quarter, a 28-point lead in the third quarter, or a 22-point lead in the fourth quarter. So for this game in particular, we hit garbage time with seven minutes left in the second quarter. So the advanced stats here are really just
1: looking at just at twenty-three minutes of football, not a ton of plays. And and in those twenty-three minutes, this is about as one sided of a game as, as we've seen really all season, but you know, remove non power five opponents. This is about as dominant as Brian Kelly's teams have been against a power five opponent. Uh Notre Dame's offense, sixty percent success rate. The, again, success rate, that's getting 50% of yards on first down, 70% of yards to go on second down, getting a first down on third or fourth down. So 60% of the time, we were staying on or ahead of schedule. The explosiveness rating, that's on an index of about 0.7 to 1.8. 1.63 was Notre Dame's explosiveness, the best on the season. Line yards per play, that's how much line, uh, line of scrimmage yardage the offensive line is generating and push on run plays. That was 3.7 lines. Uh, line yards per Russian in this game, all the highest on the season for Notre Dame. So they're staying on schedule. They were generating big plays and they're controlling the line of scrimmage. And on the defensive side of the football, really more of the same in terms of dominating. Georgia Tech's success rate was forty-two percent, not terrible. The big difference in this game was Notre Dame's defensive havoc rate was a ridiculous twenty-five percent. So on on one in four plays, uh, Notre Dame was disrupting. Uh, Georgia Tech with sacks, with turnovers, with strip sack fumbles. Um, again, the, the two defensive touchdowns. And then Georgia Tech's explosiveness. So Notre Dame's was 1.63. Georgia Tech's was 0.7. That's about as low as you can get. So Georgia Tech just had 20 offensive snaps before we hit garbage time uh, midway through the second quarter. But in those 20 snaps, Notre Dame really controlled this game.
0: Yeah, about as
1: dominant as it gets. Interesting
0: side note here. One of our, uh, sources of data that we look at actually, uh, had the havoc rate for Notre Dame's defense generated around 65%, which was clearly not right when you look, when we looked at the success rate. However, Notre Dame was so dominant on defense when I saw that, uh, I didn't initially put that together. I was like, oh wow, 60%. That's a crazy havoc rate. And then Brett had to step in and he's like, you know what, I don't think that's right. That <laughs> doesn't match up with the success rate. But I think the point here is, is Notre Dame was so, dominant that that didn't even I didn't even think twice about it initially um but uh needless say our offense controlled the line of scrimmage here we uh, generated big plays and we stayed on or ahead of schedule on about two-thirds of plays um and then for Georgia Tech their their offense generally stayed on schedule at a decent rate but when they didn't stay on schedule the key here was that Andy's Havoc just wrecked the the rambling wreck and and Georgia Tech generated nothing in the way of big plays to mitigate any of this
1: Let's let's wrap up this game by just focusing on some some player spotlights. I, I don't think there's much more in the way of takeaways in in a 55 to nothing game, but but just calling out some individuals. Jack Cohn led all offensive grades in Pro Football Focus with an 86. That's elite level. Anything above an 80, you're you're looking like an NFL caliber player. So he he played like an, F, an NFL caliber player in this game. Threw for 285 yards. He had an adjusted completion percent of 89. percent So that adjusted completion percent. It factors in uh, drops, it factors in throwaways, it, it kind of just r- removes those passes. Uh, 89% for context, the leader in FBS football for the season is is 83%. So when he's 89% for a game, that, that's really, really incredible numbers. Uh, and then the two other big offensive players in this game, Mike Mayer and Kevin Austin, both had uh, 50-plus yard catches, both graded out in the high 70s, so high-end college starter level grades. Interestingly, a lot of the rest of the offensive grades were in the 60s, uh, which is kind of average college-level starter grades. I think a big function of that is how quickly this game went to garbage time. So if you're looking up the player grades in this one and, and, and you're seeing maybe lower-than-expected pro football focus grades, I wouldn't think twice about it. it. It's really a function of garbage time. But Cone, Austin, Mayer really got this party started and, and had big nights for the offense. Definitely. This game, uh, while
0: dominating because of all the garbage time for the pro football focus grades, uh, there is more noise than usual in, um, in looking at these pro football focus grades. Now moving to defense, uh, we had 15 players that had grades of 69 or higher. So really, 15 guys played above, at above average college level starter grades. There were several in the high 70s and 80s. Um, a few shout outs here. Fosky, not surprising here. He graded out at 85. Dominant the entire game. He had that sack that forced the fumble. For MTA's scoop and score, one of the most memorable senior game moments that I can recall. Um, also, the uh, QB pressure that forced the Jack Kaiser pick six. So the havoc he was generating, extremely impactful. JT Bertrand, grade of 85, another elite score here. Led all defensive grades, in fact. Uh, a pass deflection on the exact same seam route that Cincy beat on him to seal the game in the Irish's only loss. They uh, Kelly and Bertrand actually had a nice moment on the sideline. Um, when he defended that play well, uh, both of them both of them knew that this was a, a growth moment. It was something that Kelly had kind of ribbed at him before to defend that play properly, and, and he did it here. And uh, clearly, they were both happy. We've we've highlighted Bertrand's struggles a bit um, earlier in the season. We thought perhaps it was a combination of inexperience as a first year starter uh, who wasn't expected to start, plus fatigue from a really high snap count. However. This is the third straight game with a pro football focus grade of 66 or higher. So, and this one was easily his best game. Really a great building block for the future and I'm feeling, uh, very optimistic about him moving forward. Uh, and then, uh, MTA. I mean, we talked about his, his scoop and score. What a great story. We hi- highlighted him as one of our favorite seniors in last week's episode. That, that's, that, uh, that moment worth the scoop and score. Uh, the NBC broadcast called it out. They actually talked to his mom. His mom was actually, uh, in tears in, in, in the interview. She was, she was, she was, uh, uh, the whole family's, it's been a difficult year for them with the passing away of his father. But on a, on a, on a senior game like this to, uh, have one of the most memorable, impactful moments, it couldn't happen to a better guy here. So really happy, really happy for MTA, really happy for his family to be able to experience a moment like this, uh, in person.
1: The the other thing that that I'd highlight but before we wrap this one up, um, the depth of defensive line. You mentioned 15 defensive players had grades of 69 or higher. About half of that was defensive linemen, so we know next year we're going to lose MTA and Kurt Heinish. It's possible Foskey goes to the NFL, although I think a lot of people think he might stick around another year to try to boost his draft grade. Um, the Adam Malola brothers are both seniors. It, it's unclear if they'll come back or not for a fifth year or transfer or graduate, so There could be some serious pieces we we lose next year on defensive line, but Riley Mills, grade of 77, Jordan Botello, grade of 75, Howard Cross, two sacks, grade of 74. There's a lot of young pieces on this defensive line that have played really well, have gotten a lot of snaps, they're in the rotation. Um, It seems like we've got a sustainable blueprint to follow uh, on on the defensive line that's more than just one or two key players. This is really a unit playing well together. Agreed. I think
0: the defensive line, Elston has had this unit humming consistently for years now. Um, and we clearly have the young talent now to keep pushing this tradition forward. Um, yeah, it's one of the units that I just feel most confident about now and moving forward. So, what else did we miss on this game? Suffice to say, uh, myself and Brett both predicted that Notre Dame would cover, and they did, uh, by a pretty wide margin. Brett is now 8-2 against the spread. Which he, Heck uh, yeah. he wants me, which he wants me to remind you of. Something to be proud of for sure. However, this show is not focused on, on betting, but if our, uh, listeners want to follow Brett's picks, seems like easy money at this point. Um, and now I think, uh, another, another weekly tradition that we, that we do is our Twitter contest for, uh, for the score prediction. We had a lot of our Twitter followers heavily favoring the Irish. No surprise here. A biased crowd. Uh, except for John Henry, one of our friends who always picks, uh, narrow Notre Dame losses. Just hoping that, uh, when it does happen, he'll have some really, really uh, random obscure score that we have to say on the, on the show. But, uh, anyways, congratulations to Jonathan McWhorter. He predicted a 43 to 3 Irish victory, 40 point win. Uh, that was the most aggressive of the predictions.
1: So you win this week's contest. Well done. All right, on to Stanford in the season finale.
0: Okay, it's the last game for a lot of guys. Let's make sure that that emotion
1: is then transferred into enthusiasm.
0: Stanford preview. Rivalry game on the road to close out the season and stay alive for college football playoff berth uh, or secure a New Year's Six Bowl game. This is a huge game for Notre Dame, and in almost any season, this would bring all sorts of stress for Irish fans. However, uh, I don't think that that's certainly not the
1: case this year. Yeah, the, the wheels are falling off in Palo Alto. The Cardinal is 3-8. and eight. They've lost six straight. They're just not playing competitive football at this point in the season. Uh, interestingly, their last win was against Oregon in overtime, who, of course, just lost this weekend as the number three team in the country And w- before that was in the playoff hunt. But if you go back and watch that game, really a poorly officiated game um, or early on in the season that kept Stanford in it. So if your narrative is like, well, look, if Stanford can beat Oregon, then Notre Dame should watch out. Not really the case, and certainly since that Oregon game, the, the Stanford program's really taken a nosedive. As Brett said uh, this year,
0: just not, not competitive. Lost to a 4-6 and six Cal team, 41-11. to 11. That's their big rival. Uh, lost to Oregon State by three scores. Utah, 52-7. to seven. Arizona State by three scores. So we're going to keep this preview short. It's not that we're looking past Stanford, but
1: there are more interesting storylines that we would like to cover. Yeah, so we'll break this down into three very quick takeaways. One is we'll just recap the advanced stats like we try to do every week for, for the upcoming opponent. We're then going to look at the quarterback situation in, in Palo Alto and then their recruiting situation. So to start with the advanced stats on offense, they have a success rate of 39%. Teams want that number to be in the high 40s. So again, 30, you know, success rate kind of measures how often do you stay on schedule? How often do you consistently move the football? Uh, 39%, that's 106th in the country, so bottom 25, really. Uh Havoc rate allowed on 19% of plays. Again, offenses want to be in the low teens. Defenses want to be in the high teens. So one in every five plays, the opponents are disrupting Stanford's offense. That's also 106th in the country. And then SP+, which measures overall offensive efficiency, has this as the 94th most efficient offense. So across the board, uh, not a good offensive production on defense similar success rate allowed is 49 percent. again offenses want to be in the high 40s and if you play against stanford you're in the high 40s um, that ranks 124th in the country out of 130 teams that is a bottom six offense havoc rate just 12 12%. percent. that's 128th in the country third worst sp plus has this as the 106th most efficient defense so On both offense and defense, this is really like bottom 30 units. And it's, it's just been a struggle for, for a program, uh, that, you know, has historically had a lot of success and really outside of Navy, this is the worst team Notre Dame will play this year according to pretty much every single advanced metric. They've fallen pretty far. As we
0: mentioned before, this is a
1: game that would give us a lot of stress in the past.
0: And actually we're in a somewhat similar situation. Uh I think it was back in 2015 we had some chance of potentially sneaking into the playoff and then um, the wheels the wheels fell off or actually maybe, maybe it was I think maybe it was actually 2017 but um yeah needless to say we uh, we didn't play well in that game and they and they killed our our playoff chances don't think that's the case here another key takeaway here uh the QB room is a mess <coughs> but it might be improving uh starting QB Tanner McKee he missed two straight games before the Cal game uh, the offense didn't top 100 passing yards in those two games and scored just 10.5 points per game in that stretch. McKee, he's now back, but his first outing against Cal was ugly. Two interceptions, completed just 60% of his passes. Po- football focus grade of 68, that's not awful, but that's about a middle-of-the-road starter grade. So, he's been out, uh, he's clearly their guy at QB, um, maybe some of the rust comes off this game and they're looking a little bit better at that position, and that's not necessarily reflected in some of these advanced metrics. Um, and then I think another takeaway that we have to press on here, and this is something uh, Brett and I talk about all the time, is recruiting. So from 2009 to 2017, if you exclude the 2013 class when Harbaugh left and David Shaw came in, Stanford's average recruiting class ranked eight, 18th according to 247, consistently in that top 20 range. We cover this in the season preview and in our recruiting update, but Stanford's admissions did not change their timeline when the NCAA went to the new early signing day period in 2017. As a result, a bunch of recruits walked away from Stanford to be able to commit somewhere else or risk not getting admitted to Stanford. And needless to say, the impact has been uh has been noticeable. Stanford's 2018 recruiting class, now their senior class was number 40 in the country. And importantly, that class only had 14 recruits. A typical class for reference has around 20 to 25. Notre Dame this year, it's looking like we'll probably we could end up somewhere around twenty-five will be definitely somewhere in that, uh, that 20 to 25 range. Um, the next two classes for, for Stanford were both ranked number 20, but that was more a function of quality, uh, of quantity. I mean, 24 commits in each class, which is on the high end a bit. Um, and, but the average commit was weighed out. So not a ton of quality, high impact type recruits. And then this most recent class in 2021 ranked number 43. So huge drop off in talent and most importantly, a big drop off in depth. Uh, they've also had quite a few transfers, um, in the last few years too. So uh, that depth, very important for a physical p- football team like Stanford, uh, f- given the style of football that David Shaw likes to play. We're not really seeing that necessary level of recruiting and that necessary level of depth that they need. Um, and it's, it's showing on the football field.
1: Yeah. It felt like for a decade, every single time Notre Dame and Stanford played as a top 25 matchup. And so if our listeners are wondering, how do you go from a top 25 Stanford team year in and year out to uh, bottom 30 team in the country it's a drop-off in recruiting it's a drop-off in depth um and then frankly there's more to it than that right like that doesn't explain all of this but that does explain a big chunk of it so very quickly let's go through our score predictions sp plus implies notre dame should be about a 26 point favorite on a neutral field about 22 to 23 points on the road but the las vegas opening line here is 17 points so irish Feels like they're being disrespected a little bit by Las Vegas relative to where some of the advanced metrics would have us. Uh, the only thing I can think of there is that SP Plus is underrating Stanford for the games when Tanner McKee was injured. But this last game against Cal still seems like you know McKee's back, but wasn't a, a better football performance for for Stanford. Definitely agree. McKee being back, maybe he's, maybe
0: that's impacting the, the line, the Vegas line versus SP plus. Um, we'll see. I, I do think like, the, I I would expect the line to potentially move up as, as the week goes on. Um, either way, the Stanford team is just overmatched, uh, against Notre Dame in all aspects. Kelly, Kelly doesn't love the style points approach, but I do think he knows at this point that any statement he can make here will help his case for playoff selection. Also, an underappreciated aspect here is, uh, Stanford gave ND fits earlier in Kelly's tenure. This is kind of the emotional aspect. I don't really know how much this impacts things, but I feel like I should mention it. I think Kelly in particular, he doesn't let it on as much as I think, uh, he actually thinks it. I think he in particular takes pleasure in smacking Stanford. They're our academic rival. They gave, like I said, they gave us fits, uh, for a while in his tenure. And now that we're clearly, uh, we clearly have the edge on them, I think, uh, it's something that we, are relishing a bit so look for bk to have the boys ready to play and i'm gonna say out for blood they know they have to show well here uh to have any postseason hopes we have to play well and i'm gonna predict uh 43 to 15 here i think the myth of the farm having some hold over us i think that is long gone
1: yeah it's, it's interesting in kelly's um first games against stanford he loses at home, loses at Stanford, wins at home, loses at Stanford, wins at home, loses at Stanford, loses at home, loses at Stanford. Uh, then, though, back-to-back games now against Stanford, Notre Dame is won by 21 points. So it felt like a while David Shaw really had Brian Kelly's number, but the last two have been blowouts in favor of Notre Dame. Um, so I, I think you're onto something there. When I was doing the research and helping with the notes for, for this episode, I was actually leaning Notre Dame by about 14 points. Uh, I've been to a game at the farm on Thanksgiving weekend. It's a weird stadium environment where, frankly, it's not a lot of energy. And in some ways, when the home environment doesn't bring energy, that sometimes makes it hard for a team traveling from the Midwest all the way out to the West Coast to, to bring their own energy. And then I also thought the return of Tanner McKee would, would be a difference in this game to at least get Stanford to be competitive. However, then this weekend happened. Notre Dame dominated Georgia Tech. Stanford gets crushed by Cal Berkeley, who's not a good team. Cal Berkeley will not be bowling this year. Um, and that really changed my mind. So I've, I've flipped this a little bit. I'm a little more conservative than you are. I've got it Notre Dame 35 to 10. Uh, so covering that 17 point spread. Um, I also thought the spread was going to be a little closer to 2021, 20, 22. So the other thing I'd say is I got a feeling that the, the Las Vegas line is, is going to move over the course of this week and, and it's going to inflate in favor of Notre Dame. So, if you are into betting and, and you're looking to put money on this Notre Dame game, uh, I'd encourage you to do it early. Do it now. Get that locked in at that 17 point spread. I've got Notre Dame winning 35-10 and close out the season 11 and one.
0: Yeah, get that. Get those.
1: Uh, the, your score
0: against the spread. Keep keep improving that record. I think this another point that's uh, important here is uh, showing a clear uh, advantage in, in football over Stanford uh, helps tremendously with recruiting. They're really like the only program that we have that for a while could offer high level football and high level academics so anytime that we can just smack them it just really like the 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 point that they can make on football just doesn't really hold any water so i think like these academic focused uh recruits having stanford down beating them dominantly i think uh helps our trajectory from recruiting standpoint we're going to prepare the same way our standards are the same it's a faceless opponent but they're going to feel us
1: the return of the listener mailbag. We're going to do an extended segment here covering, uh, several questions we've gotten from listeners in, in the last few weeks and, and wanted to make sure we, we covered them in, in this week's show. So starting off, first time caller, long time listener, Tom, uh, wants to better understand the SP plus ratings and the ESPN FPI ratings. Uh, you know, the, Tom's perspective was, look, they, they don't make any sense. How can someone like Wisconsin be number four? How can six and four Iowa State be number 12? how is florida who's 5 and 5 how are they number 22 or tennessee 5 and 5 how are they number 24 sp just must be wrong right so we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about what sp plus is and isn't and really we're talking about sp plus the same goes for fpi uh football power index but by, by ESPN they're really both measuring the same thing um, so let's start by saying what sp plus uh is not um SP Plus is not a resume tool. Wins and losses aren't a variable. It's not meant to measure what teams have had the best outcomes, who's had the best results, who should be in the playoff, who should be in a New Year's Six Bowl. It is not meant to be a resume tool. It's also not meant to predict where a team will be at the end of the season. So, for example, 5-5 and Florida is currently number 22 in SP Plus. That is not meant to predict that Florida will be the 22nd team at the end of the season. So it's a predictive tool on a game-by-game basis not for the entire season. So we know what it isn't. So then what is uh, SP Plus?
0: What is FPI? So a predictive analytics, very similar to what Las Vegas uses. They predict how a team would do against an average team on a neutral field. So how do they do that? They measure efficiency of a team's defense and offense. So these are metrics that we talk about a lot on this podcast. Success rate, expected points per play, havoc rate, explosiveness. All the, like I said, these are things that we're constantly talking about. Um, another important point to make here, though, is uh, is turnovers. It turns out turnovers are actually highly uncorrelated with how good a football team is. The one variable, however, that can predict turnovers is sack rate, which isn't too surprising. If you sack the QB a lot, you'll force a lot of bad throws, and you'll be more likely to get strip sack fumbles, uh, interceptions, etc. But otherwise, statistically speaking, turnovers oftentimes are just luck. And then another factor here is uh, adjusting for for tempo of a game and adjusting for who you are playing. So Florida playing a close loss to Alabama, that's actually a way way better performance from SP plus FPI standpoint than say Notre Dame barely squeaking by
1: Florida State. Yeah, and the hardest part of this equation is that opponent adjustment, right? There's dramatically different schedules in college football. Uh, we know playing Bama or Georgia is way harder than playing South Alabama or Georgia Southern, but how much harder? Uh, how much harder is it to play Cincinnati than Michigan State? Those are really kind of subjective questions, and, and SP Plus does a you know pretty good job of trying to quantify that. But that's really what you're seeing, where you might have a you know seven and three Wisconsin team or five and five Florida in, in the top 25 of SP Plus, is because on a play by play basis, when you're measuring their efficiency, you're making adjustments for, for that really strength of schedule. So then, what does a quote unquote SP Plus ranking mean? Ranking is really probably the wrong word. It's it's ranking a team's expected efficiency going forward, not wins and losses. So it's not rankings in the traditional sense. It's not rankings like the AP poll or the college football playoff committee. So we tend to try to avoid the word ranking uh, when we talk about SP Plus on this show. We try to say, you know, th- this team is the 106th most efficient defense or the 17th most efficient offense, right? So we, we try to put it in efficiency terms. And stay away from saying this is stacking up someone's resume. But what it's meant to do, what it's meant to be used is to predict point spreads. So if Notre Dame has an SP plus rating of 17.5, that's the number, and Stanford's SP plus score is negative 6.6, which that's actually their SP plus ratings right now, that difference of 17.5 and minus 6.6, that's 24 points. So what that says is the difference between those two teams, 24 points, is what you would expect Notre Dame to be favored against Stanford on a neutral field. Then there's usually a three- or four-point adjustment uh, for the home team. And so that's where we said if uh, Notre Dame is a 24-point favorite against Stanford on a neutral field, it's maybe 21 or 20 points uh, on the road at Stanford. And that's where we're comparing the SP-plus implied spread against the Las Vegas spread, which in this case opened up as as a 17-point favorite.
0: Yep, I think that's all great context. I think uh, another aspect of this that's important is uh, – well, it does like – there are teams that, that are ranked, like Brett mentioned. The rating component is pretty key here. So you could have – a team could be number five in this, uh, but it could be – the rating that uh, they're getting could be dramatically different than, than the number four team. So while there's only one spot difference between those two teams – um, the rating could suggest that those teams are actually pretty dramatically different in terms of how they would, how they would do if they played, played each other. Um, but this Neil, yeah, uh,
1: oh, go ahead, Brett. Uh, I was just gonna say a really good example of that. I had a lot of friends that were so confused on how could Utah be favored against Oregon, uh, this last week when Oregon was number three and Utah was number 23. And SP Plus was spot on. SP Plus said Utah was the more efficient team playing and play out. Now they had some bad turnover luck. They lost a couple close games but play in play out Utah is a really good and very efficient team and Oregon's been squeaking by. Oregon has gotten a lot of turnover luck. Ohio State had a lot of turnovers against Oregon that really kind of kept them in that game. Um Oregon squeaked by in a lot of close games where their offense wasn't really moving the football. And so these efficiency ratings try to sort through the noise of congrats to Oregon up till that point in the season. They beat Ohio State on the road. They were a one-loss team in, in an overtime loss at Stanford so like resume wise, yeah. Oregon had a top-four resume up until last week. But when you break down the efficiency ratings, they weren't a top-four team, and that was exposed against Utah.
0: Yeah, and it's not perfect. It doesn't take into account injuries. So, for example, we played Virginia. Brennan Armstrong was gone. Um, he wasn't playing in that game. But we still got credit for absolutely destroying them even without them. So there are like certain, certain uh, caveats that you have to take into consideration when you're comparing the SP+. Plus uh, spread that they give versus what Vegas will get you. Obviously Vegas is considering all these factors, um, but generally I, Vegas uses something very similar to set these spreads is like a baseline. And then, and then I imagine they adjust it accordingly. Um, now on to the next topic. Uh, this is a question that we got. How, how would we assess the change in offensive performance from first half versus second half? Okay. Great question. Uh, so I would suggest uh, checking out the Rakes Report podcast uh, by Chris Wilson. So he had Jamie Yu on as a guest. Jamie's a writer and vlogger for Irish Sports Daily. They they actually spent an entire show on the topic, and, and we thought it was really well done. Um, Jamie, he really identified two changes in the offensive scheme. So, one, we've talked about this before, um, and a lot of beat writers have talked about this, but it's it's tempo. More tempo, less huddling, uh, more tempo in the play calls, more passes in less than two and a half seconds. And then the second change was more RPO RPO so run pass options. A lot of people think RPOs here uh, mean that the running back and QB delay the handoff and then decide who runs, an option for both uh, the running back and the QB to run. So that is one type of RPO, but the original RPO is really that the quarterback is deciding whether or not to hand it off to the running back or to step back and throw the ball, usually quick routes, wide receiver bubble screens, tight end flat routes, slants, quick hitters, Reese, he was not calling RPOs for Cone because most of his RPO calls previously within book were of the running variety. So we scrapped that with Cone, who, as we know, can't run super well. Um, and then uh, eventually we ended up uh, bringing back RPOs with the passing option, seeing a lot more bubble screens, jet sweeps. I would certainly noticed more jet sweeps this past game and slants, and it's been and it's been very successful. It also has opened up the running game, another key component here. Um, a noticeable stat to kind of point to this change in philosophy, this change in play calling, is the average depth of target for pass attempts. So how far downfield is the receiver when the ball gets to them? For the first five games, that average was 10.5 yards downfield. For the last five games, shorter,
1: 7.5 yards, a pretty noticeable uh, decline. The one other nuance, I think the passing game is getting a lot of attention. I thought Jamie Uyama did a great job calling out a, a nuanced change in the run game And that was going to more what Jamie calls duo runs. Uh, If you recall from an an episode we did earlier this season that covered the zone blocking scheme that the Notre Dame deploys, uh, duo runs are designed to run right behind an offensive line. That's doing one of those zone blocking double teams where one lineman is trying to bounce off of the double team and quickly get to the second level and find a linebacker, get that running back right behind that blocking action, usually behind the center and the guard. Um, Notre Dame, has had a lot of success running outside zone reads. So that's more of a stretch play where the running back is kind of bouncing from one hole to the next outside, stringing it out, letting as many double teams uh form as possible, going east to west, and then once a hole opens up, cut up field and get north to south. That's been highly successful for Notre Dame in the last few years, going back to Dexter Williams, Josh Adams, Kyron Williams last year. Getting those stretch run plays with zone blocking on the outside especially when you got a guy like Tommy Tremble at at tight end blocking for you, was really successful the last few years. This year, that stretch zone run read was not working. Why? Kane Madden, good blocker, he's pretty slow. Zeke Corral, good interior lineman, pretty slow. And so those stretch plays really uh, require the guards to get moving horizontally. You need your guards to be able to stretch with the running back. And frankly, our guards, that's just not their strength. So we've now been running more duo, um, still zone blocking plays, but it's more up the gut rather than to the outside. And that's putting guys like Kane Madden and now Andrew Kristofovich at left guard in a, in a much better position for success. So how's the scheme changed? Yeah, it, it's been pretty dramatic. Um, it's almost surprising it took five games to make those changes, right? Why did it take uh, Brian Kelly and Tommy Reese until the bye week to figure this out? Well, we Put up a ton of points against Florida State in the opener. We scored 32 points against Toledo, who's a top 30 defense, uh, according to a lot of the advanced metrics. So there are some red flags, but the original plan for at least the first few weeks was working. And so it made sense that you just didn't scrap that all right away. But then, very clearly, it wasn't working against Wisconsin. It wasn't working against Cincinnati. Um, It wasn't working for the first half of the Virginia Tech game. Uh, we use the bye week to get it right, but very, very clearly some definitive changes in the offensive scheme. Very productive bye week. One of the most productive bye
0: weeks I can remember just in terms of tweaking our scheme. And Kane Madden, Zeke Corral, don't feel bad that Brett called you slow. We can't all have SEC speed. Uh, if, if you want to take it up with them, you can reach out to, uh, reach out to our Twitter account and I'll be happy to give you, uh, Brett's address and you guys can, can race in person. Um, now I would, I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, one factor that's pretty obvious here. We've also played, uh, worst defenses. Wisconsin and Cincinnati early in the year, second and 11th most efficient defenses per SV plus. So some of the best defenses in the country. Virginia Tech, 25. That's a good defense. Brett just mentioned Toledo. They're 32. And Purdue's 37. Even Florida State is 49. So all top 50 defenses, two in the top 11. Since then, uh, USC is 86. North Carolina is 78. Navy, 84. UVA, 83. Georgia Tech, they were 81 and Stanford this next week, uh, they're 100 and 102nd. So, uh, we basically went from playing top 50 defenses to, to, uh, bottom 50 defenses. And, um, while I think we have improved, you can't lose sight of that, uh, that level of competition. Um, and now I think the last factor are, uh, are any of the players dramatically improved from an offensive line standpoint? I certainly think yes. Um, I think a lot of it, is that some of these scheme changes we mentioned, but also more time to gel. Uh, there's better communication because they've played 10 games together. We've made some tweaks at certain uh, certain positions, uh, but also those duo runs. They're just better positioned to win at the line of scrimmage. These quick passing throws, better positioned to hold up in pass protection. In fact, uh, I think this is a, a key point here to uh, just shed light on the level of protection that they've been providing. The average protection on passing plays was 2.7 seconds in the first five games, and it's still 2.7 seconds in the last five games. So we're not protecting dramatically better. In fact, this would suggest we're protecting at about the same level. We're just getting the ball out faster and putting our offensive line in a better position to succeed.
1: Yeah, I I really think, the, the offensive line has improved in in the run game for sure. We, we talk about line yards a lot. Line yards have improved a ton over the course of the season. I think you're right in pass protection. They were fine early on. Cone was just taking a lot of sacks on some really long developing routes. Jack Cohn, though, he's the one noticeable player that's made tremendous strides or is maybe the biggest beneficiary of, of this uh, change in offensive scheme, going to more tempo, going to shorter routes. We tweeted about this earlier in the week going to throw out some of his stats in the first five games versus the last five games his pro football focus passing grade 65 in the first half of the year 80 in the second half of the year that's the difference between a low-end college starter and an nfl caliber passer Uh, not a first round talent but if you're in the 80s on pro football focus you got a shot of making an nfl roster adjusted completion percent so this basically is your completion percent excluding drops and excluding passes that you throw away because you're under duress increased from 71% to 85%. For context, Mississippi State's quarterback Will Rogers and Alabama's quarterback Bryce Young lead the country at 82-83% for the entire season. So over the last five, six games, Cone has been one of the most accurate, efficient passers um, in the entire country. I don't care about level of competition. I, I get it. We're playing worse defenses. We're not playing Cincinnati anymore. We're not playing Wisconsin anymore. But, but that's phenomenal. So wrapping up, this question of is it more offensive scheme? Is it more, uh, the players are better? Is it more, we're just playing worse defenses? It's, it's all of those things. And, and I think that's a little bit of the scary part right now is, is this just smoke and mirrors? Is this just playing weaker opposition? Um, and we won't know that until we get to a bowl game, whether that's in the college football playoff against a team like Georgia or against another opponent like, you know, Michigan in, in a Fiesta bowl matchup. Uh, but the results are real. That The first five games versus the last five games, our success rate's gone from 38% to 48%. Expected points per play from 0.1 to 0.3. Um, so we've really gone from a bottom 25 offense to a top 25 offense. And I think that's more than just accounting for uh, quality of the opponent. Like many things, you can't just point to one thing. There are a multitude of factors
0: going on here. There's been improvement. We're playing worse competition though, too. We've made some good adjustments. Um, but overall, I think these, uh, certainly you like to see the offense improving, uh, regardless of all the circumstances. Now, uh, another mailback question that piggybacks off of this last one. If USC and the Cincy games are flipped, is Notre Dame undefeated? Uh great question from one of our most loyal listeners, Jim, uh, someone who we're bouncing ideas uh, off of constantly. So I think for me, I, I would lean yes here. And I think a lot of Notre Dame fans would too at this point. But if our offense was sputtering and uh, USC's coach isn't fired yet, I think it's important to point out that th- that game all of a sudden starts to look a little bit more precarious. I, I do think we still win, though. Um, and, if, and if we play Cincinnati today with the revamped offense, regardless of how much the change in offense is a function of playing worse teams, I do feel really good that our offense is more efficient and puts points on the board. I'm not saying we're going to blow them out, uh, but I, I think that we do win that game. Um, looking at SP Plus right now, ND would actually uh, be a two-and-a-half-point underdog on a neutral field. So at home, that actually would suggest that we're a one- or two-point favorite. Um, and for when we actually played Cincy, we were two-point underdogs against them at home. So SP Plus actually thinks that we've closed the gap here a bit against Cincinnati and that if we played them at home, we should win. Um,
1: and that's despite the data point that we uh, lost to them by 11 points. Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. I think if if we would have made this change in the scheme, change in the tempo, uh, gotten the run game figured out or earlier on in the season, um, I think we give Cincinnati a run for their money. Like it's a total hypothetical, but I think we take it to them. If, if we get a chance to rematch them in the college football playoff, albeit unlikely, uh, I feel better about our chances than I did when, when, when we played them earlier in the season. Last meal bag topic, uh, path to the playoff and likely bowl games for Notre Dame. So if Notre Dame wins out, the options are pretty much the college football playoff, the Fiesta Bowl, or the Peach Bowl. That, that's the three scenarios. If Peach Bowl, it'd be against the ACC champ, given this year the Orange Bowl is, is one of the college football playoff semifinals, so the ACC champ goes to the Peach Bowl. That is likely looking like Pittsburgh or Wake Forest. Clemson, still a possible shot. If the Fiesta Bowl, that would be the Big Ten runner-up by way of the college football playoff rankings. So likely Michigan, maybe Wisconsin. Certainly looks like Michigan State's on the outside looking in after the blowout loss to to Ohio State. So seems like a toss-up. A lot of Irish fans are saying that they'd love to take on Michigan and get a big rivalry game for a for New Year's Six Bowl. I think that would be awesome. First and foremost, we've said this on the show, we always want our shot at a playoff. We always want our shot at a championship, even if we're big underdogs. Um, That path is still unlikely, and and certainly it's not a given, but the path is there, and it's more likely than than it was when when we talked about this a few weeks ago.
0: Looking at the the path to the college football playoff, um, generally – it is fairly unchanged from what we discussed a few weeks ago. ND has taken care of business, though, and that's important. And there have been some chips that have been falling. Uh, so ND, as we talked about in our Stanford preview, were clearly positioned to win out uh, with only sta- with only uh, a game against them, a, a-, a vastly inferior opponent. Um, we needed Wake Forest to lose. That happened. Check. Oregon needed to lose. This was one of the bigger dominoes. Check. They got torched by Utah this past weekend. Then we said the Big Ten will cannibalize itself. Sparty lost this weekend and Ohio state plays Michigan this next weekend. Um, so pause there. Andy should be up to number six this week with a big 12 champ breathing down our neck. So Brett, uh, what, what else is left
1: that needs to happen? Yeah. So the two big things we said in, in addition to wake force in Oregon, Georgia needs to win up. And, and the reason why we need to win out is that would include beating Alabama, which would give Alabama their second loss and likely move Notre Dame above Alabama. And the other Cincinnati needs to lose. And, and look, there's a there's only one remaining difficult game for for Cincinnati and that's in the AAC conference championship game against Houston now a lot of people think well but a one loss Cincinnati team they beat Notre Dame so shouldn't they get the head-to-head if if both have one loss that doesn't likely add up and and the reason for that is the committee's consistently use head-to-head as a tiebreaker and it's a tiebreaker for similar resumes so the fact that Notre Dame has one loss and Cincinnati has one loss, that's not necessarily the same uh, resume because of Cincinnati's strength of schedule. It's just so much worse than Notre Dame. And frankly, it's really just worse than everyone else in the top ten. That a one-loss Cincinnati, they almost certainly get knocked so far lower than Notre Dame that we're not even talking about the head-to-head. It's just a data point, um, but it's not like it's serving there as, as a tiebreaker. Um, so if the above happened, uh, you'd be left with Georgia, who runs the table, Big 10 champ, let's just say it's Ohio State, wins out from here. The Big 12 champ, let's say Oklahoma or Oklahoma State, wins out. And then Bama now behind us. Uh, Cincy loses behind us. Um, Michigan loses to Ohio State behind us. And Notre Dame's the fourth spot in in that scenario.
0: However, if at least Bama or Cincy loses, the other path for Notre Dame is chaos in the Big 10 and Big 12. Big 10... Seems unlikely, and we're talking about chaos beyond just what we know has to happen with Michigan State, Michigan, and Ohio State. Um, Ohio State uh, is shredding opponents, and so when we're talking about chaos here, we mean more in like the Big Ten Championship. Uh, so the winner of the Michigan-Ohio State game will likely be heavy favorites against Wisconsin in the Big Ten Championship. Maybe maybe not as massive as, as, as we're initially thinking. Wisconsin actually uh, fares pretty well in a lot of the advanced metrics. SP Plus has them, I think, top five. So the spread may not be quite as massive, but... I think uh, realistically most people would expect Ohio State in that matchup to take care of business. Um, and yeah, so, d- Just
1: on that point, Wisconsin on a neutral field against Michigan would be a 1.5-point underdog against Ohio State a 10-point underdog a- according to SP+. So, I wouldn't say root for Michigan this weekend, but if Michigan
0: does beat Ohio State, the odds of that chaos happening certainly is much more likely. Michigan is much more likely to drop a game against Wisconsin than than Ohio State is. Um, So, I I think certainly Wisconsin winning the Big Ten, that's the best case scenario for Notre Dame fans. You knock out the Big Ten, and then Notre Dame, it just makes our win against Wisconsin look even better. Now, moving to the Big 12, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State playing the Bedlam Classic next weekend. If OU wins... Those two teams will rematch the following week in the Big 12 championship. Uh, if, Oklahoma still, if Oklahoma State wins this rematch, then they will both have two losses, knocking them both out of college football playoff contention. If Oklahoma State wins that first match, then Oklahoma is out. Oklahoma State would then play Baylor in the Big 12 championship. And then the Irish would be pulling for Baylor to hand Oklahoma State that second loss. So from a Big 12 standpoint... Um, yeah, we, we we certainly need some chaos here. It's not a given that anything that uh, any any of these scenarios are going to happen. Um, it's certainly certainly possible though. Uh, but I think you're hearing from some people in the media, a lot of fans, they think that the the Big Twelve is is, is out of contention right now. That's certainly not the case. If Oklahoma runs the table here, I think they probably I think they probably jump Notre Dame, and certainly Oklahoma State. Almost certainly will jump Notre Dame if uh, if, if they went out. The committee has been a little squirrely this year. They don't really like re- seem to respect Oklahoma that much, but I think it'd be pretty hard to to not put them in over Notre Dame if they had these two big wins at the end.
1: Yeah, if if Oklahoma or Oklahoma State ends as a one loss Big Twelve champ, they will have three top twenty wins um, against each other, and then Baylor, and then the, the Big Twelve. Championship game that they would each wind up with with three top twenty wins. If one of them runs the table, compare that to Notre Dame, who just has one top twenty win. It's just a better resume. Now, what I like about this Big Twelve scenario is, regardless of what happens in Bedlam, the Big Twelve championship will have a scenario of a two loss team playing in it with the opportunity to give the other team a second loss. So, regardless if it's the Oklahoma State Oklahoma rematch or the Oklahoma State Baylor championship game, Notre Dame fans will have a big dog in that fight um, and and know who to be pulling for two weeks from now. So stepping back, what what are the odds for Notre Dame to get into the playoff? 538, we reference them a lot. They have actually lowered Notre Dame's probability of making the playoff from 32% to 22%. And really, I think that's the combination of needing two of three outcomes, Bama losing, Cincy losing and a two-loss Big 12 champ. We need two of those things to happen. Looks like 538 is saying that's a 22% chance. Now, some of that is also factoring in if, since he loses, the committee could still put them above Notre Dame. If Alabama loses to Georgia, say in a really close game, a two-loss Alabama could still be above Notre Dame. So I think that's where 538 is coming up with that lower chance at 22%. The flip side of that, ESPN's playoff predictor is they are drumming up the headline machine with Notre Dame having a 52% chance of getting in. So we're seeing vastly different odds for Notre Dame right now, ranging from about 20% to 50%, depending what kind of gunk you later you'll want to look at. Um, I don't know where Notre Dame falls in that. I know we need to take care of Stanford. I know we need some other teams to lose. And we'll see where the committee shakes out in two weeks. But right now, Notre Dame, um, on the periphery, but very much a part of the college football playoff conversation. One more step to win the month of November.
0: Okay, so we're closing out this week's show with the return of the ND obscurity of the week. We're going to discuss, given that the senior uh, game just happened, discuss the senior game tradition of the marshmallow fight. As most of our listeners know, the senior uh, the senior student section has a marshmallow fight at the last home game every year at the start of the fourth quarter.
1: But what you don't know about this tradition, well... Uh, not much. So official wife of the Guyash Talk podcast, Anne, She gets a lot of the credit here per Ann. And then we've backed this up with some ND Nation message boards. Allegedly, at one point, students threw oranges at the senior game in anticipation of going to the Orange Bowl. Uh, based on when this tradition allegedly started, that would place the origin somewhere in 1973 or 1975, two, two seasons when Notre Dame went to the Orange Bowl in the 70s. And then this tradition was attempted to be recreated in 1990 when Notre Dame went back to the Orange Bowl. However, uh, folks were worried about throwing oranges, which are heavier and hurt, and there were injuries the first time around, so they replaced oranges with marshmallows. Um, however, I caveat all of that. There's an official Notre Dame, University of Notre Dame article that says the origin of this is unknown, so... The Orange Bowl throwing of oranges tradition switching to a marshmallow tradition. It's uh, according to Anne, official wife of the Guys Talk podcast, and uh, ND Nation, but it is not an official source according to the University of Notre Dame.
0: Yeah, according to other message boards on ND Nation, a Pangborn alumni from 1986 uh, said so Notre Dame, for reference, this is back when Pangborn was, was a men's storm. He claimed that Pangborn had a marshmallow roast to raise funds for charity before the before their senior game. And in one instance, they had leftover marshmallows. So what did they do? They brought them to the game, and then they started a marshmallow fight. Uh, no one else contradicted this. Most other ND Nation comments recalled the marshmallows in the late 80s and the early 90s. So it seems plausible that this Pangborn marshmallow roast is, in fact, the origin.
1: Uh, however, while plausible, uh, I, I do like the orange story. So we don't know the origins, for sure, of the Notre Dame marshmallow tradition. Maybe we need to get Pete Sampson on this for a little investigative journalism in in the off-season. But we've got two competing theories. So let's at least provide our listeners with some concrete history, and that's the history of the marshmallow. The marshmallow dates back to at least 2000 B.C. when ancient Egyptians used an early version of marshmallows to soothe sore throats and coughs. And then the modern marshmallow was perfected by the French in the 19th century as a confection, as as a candy.
0: Yeah, really interesting, set, uh, really interesting facts there, Brett. Good to know, and thank you uh, to both the Egyptians and French for bringing us this uh, this tasty treat. I will say, from my experience, this tradition was a really fun one. Um, our senior game uh, that Brett and I both had it was actually it was freezing. It was uh, it was against it was BYU. Like throwing rocks. It was like throwing rocks. It was like ten degrees, really windy. Uh, I think there was like maybe a little bit it was of snowing. precipitation too. Yes. Yeah, snowing. It was snowing yeah. yeah, we stayed the whole time. I can't say that everyone in the uh, the senior class did. It, it, it was uh, not the most fun game to watch in terms of the uh, the temperature. Um, however, my brother, who's uh, who graduated a couple years after me, he said in his senior game, it was quite a bit warmer, and actually the marshmallows melted. Um, and they ruined his shoes because they—he they was, he was walking around and he, his shoes just got stuck in it. He had to buy new shoes. So I'll take the colder temperatures over over the melting marshmallows. Um, but yeah, these are the types of things that uh, that you wouldn't think about until you get everyone's uh, senior day marshmallow story. So with that, the that, that that's a wrap for the show. Guyrish beat Cardinal. Guyrish.